Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Bore Film Podcast, which was previously called The Discourse, but now Misha has moved on and graduated, though he may be back a few times. And now uh, I will be your host, editor for the Bore Film section, James Palmer. I hope you're all doing well during lockdown. Uh, I personally have just finished my exams. And of course, as well as COVID-19, we've had some other major social issues going on. We've had the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter response, as well as Pride Month going on. And now to talk with me about this today, um, I have both Max McMillan and Joel Soji. Uh, Max, uh, famously, uh, in I suppose Max will probably want me to put that in air quotes, <laughs> uh, is a series regular for Call the Midwife. Uh, how many years have you been on it now, Max? Since 2012, so I guess... Uh, eight. Eight years? Yeah. That's a... Uh, wow. I didn't... I never really... It's something I found recently is when people say, like, numbers of years of how long something's been going on for, I always have to take a step back and be like, wow, it's actually been that long. Yeah, I, I've had... A, having a realisation that it's kind of almost been half my life at this point. Wow. Um, so, uh, as well as that, Max has recently um, done an event, uh, a live stream on Facebook uh, with Joel uh, partaking as well called Music for Black Lives Matter. And so we'll be discussing that, where they want to go with um, that project next uh, and so on and so forth. So first, of course, you know, we've got um, a, a BBC celebrity uh, on the podcast, mm -hmm. which is a really good way to kind of relaunch, um, relaunch the podcast uh, when it comes on, it, it does really help to, to just be friends with famous people, I suppose. Um, so, Max, <laughs> thank you very much for coming on. I feel honoured that you invited um, so, me. <laughs> <laughs> so, the first question um, I'd like to ask uh, about it is, um, wh what do you think were mainly, like, kind of the pros and cons of growing up, not only growing up with a job, which I suppose a lot of people maybe do in their mid-teens, but also kind of, you know, growing up with this job on set and being on the TV, which uh, a lot of people, I suppose, especially at age 12 and below, would probably kind of, you know, dream of and idolise a bit, right? Yeah. Um, I think uh, one of the most important things it's done for me and something I'd consider, like, a massive pro is that it meant that from very early on in my kind of, you know, developmental stages, I was exposed to a professional environment because you know despite what kind of despite the image that uh tv shows and movies kind of give out the process of making these things is still extremely kind of strict professional very kind of hands-on and involves a lot of hard work from a lot of amazing people particularly behind the camera so as a kind of child actor i had it i was in an extremely lucky position because not only was I able to kind of stand back and a, a kind of observe things because my job was to just, you know, say my lines when I'm supposed to and do this, do that when the cameras are rolling. But it meant I was able to watch everything that happened between the shots, which involves, you know, setting up cameras, setting up lights, a direction from the directors, which while that's all interesting from someone who's interested in filmmaking like myself it also showed me how to both act professionally myself but also recognize when someone is being unprofessional or when someone is 
um, not taking their job very seriously. And as a result, I found it quite easy um, to sort of adapt later on in life, like coming to university, which, you know, while not everything at uni is professional, um, I was exposed to a kind of more grown-up way of looking at myself and of working with people, I think, primarily, because I just, I was able to, I, I was, I had to interact with people in a way that you sh shouldn't really when you're a 12 year old, not shouldn't, but in the way that you're not used to when you're 12. And yeah. it was really exciting. Um, so I suppose something we should do kind of precursors this is um, summarize the show Call the Midwife for, um, for uh, people who, who are listening, which is mainly going to be a student body. And I suppose for the fact that Call the Midwife is mainly watched by middle-aged mums <laughs> the intersection between those two demographics uh, isn't very large so if max you could summarize the show briefly for us before we move on yeah um well the show is based on the memoirs of a woman called jennifer worth who was a midwife in the east end of london during the 1950s uh the show's been going on for about nine seasons now so at this point, um, the story's moved away from the memoirs themselves and it's kind of following characters that the show has created. But essentially, it follows a group of midwives and nuns who live in a place called Nanata's House and their day-to-day -day lives um, delivering babies and helping people medically in the East End of London during the 1950s and 60s. So uh, as well, uh, place yourself in this show as well. Tell us about the character you play. I play a character called Timothy Turner. And in the show, I'm the son of the doctor who works with the midwives, Dr. Turner. Yeah. So um, the, the next question I'd have for you is, of course, um, child actors obviously have this stereotype to them that <laughs> they're mainly really bad. Um, when it comes to the actual acting job. And, you know, they do grow up into being good actors, but obviously when, when they're children, they don't have the same training that the older actors do uh, and, and so on and so forth. So I was wondering um, mainly how much advice uh, either your fellow actors or directors kind of gave you or do still give you when talking about certain scenes and um, how you should feel in them, how you should be acting in them and so forth and or how much they've potentially left you kind of to your own devices yeah I think early on I was left to my own devices quite a bit because uh I was very much a sort of side character that would kind of appear for more comic relief sort of thing and uh, the, the most direction I'd really get was to um you know be a tiny bit more angry or be a tiny bit happier you know that kind of thing but as it's gone on and as the writing of the character has got more uh, interesting and as the kind of relationships between the characters have developed, it's become a lot more intense. And I think the best uh, piece of advice I'm always given is kind of taking into account the context of each line from the perspective of what the character, what is going on in the character's mind to make them think of that individual line which i i know sounds quite obvious but sometimes it's really helpful to be reminded of that because you can get so stuck into developing a rhythm of stuff when you're trying to memorize lines that 
I, I know particularly for me, I'm really bad at this. When I'm memorizing lines after a while, for me, it just turns into a bunch of sounds and I completely forget the meaning behind it. And every now and then you just need to take a step back, have a look at what's going on, have a look at the actors around you and just kind of like, just let it all come out in a way that kind of effortlessly I say this but I can't watch my own performances um I think I I still got a lot to work on but I'm very lucky to have some amazing co-stars which are extremely helpful and also make my life a lot easier who would you say have been your most helpful co-stars then I imagine it would be um Stephen McGann and Laura who play your on-screen parents yeah Stephen McGann and Laura Main um I couldn't really say anyone else uh they've been there the entire eight years both being great colleagues really good friends and just like extremely supportive especially kind of I was an annoying kid so like (laughs) I'm very lucky that they didn't just decide that they hated me early on um yeah, they well, it probably helped for Stephen that, that um he has a son who's the same age as you, right? Yeah, he's in the year above. Oh, year above, so yeah. nearly the same age. Yeah, and that's always been a funny thing on set where I'll come on and I'll ask him how his real son's doing, and then he'll send messages from his real son to his fake son. Brilliant. Um, have they particularly like kind of given you um advice with things? Um, particularly in the middle of doing scenes yeah um yeah. whether it's just small little details about um how to uh, how to perform visually and also how to perform audibly with like tone of voice etc but usually the most uh helpful stuff is kind of when you work together to create a sort of um a compromise for lack of a better word between the two characters there instead of working on both of your individual performances, you get a sort of relationship in the scene. And that's always been the most exciting stuff to do when it turns into a proper conversation. So, of course, recently we've got to, uh, we've got to remember that last year, um, so you were in a film, The Song of Names, which starred some fairly big names, such as um, Tim Roth, uh, which people, especially fans of Tarantino listening along, will definitely recognise. So I was wondering um, how different it would be. How, uh, what was the difference for you? Did, did you feel playing your character in the names? If you could explain what that was about uh, as well and the character you played that fantastic. What was that requiring of you? Um, and what were the main differences you spotted between doing that um, uh, versus playing Timothy Turner, who you've played for eight years now? It was quite a lot of fun getting to do something different because uh for context i've only ever played timothy turner i'm i'm not really an an aspiring actor uh and so i've always done the same thing for all those years but it was really fun um getting to branch out a bit and while that still means you know playing a skinny 15 to 17 year old kid it, it was fun to try and play this kid, which was a who was just a bit odd, a bit off, doing something a tiny bit different from the sort of um, goody two shoes son of the doctor, uh, to simplify. Um, essentially, what the film is about it's about uh, Tim Roth's character, who, when he was a child, he befriended 
an exceptional virtuoso child genius violinist. And on the night of a big concert, the violinist vanished and they could never find him. And then years later, uh, Tim Roth's character uh, sees a boy playing in a violin competition and he does a strange thing with the rosin of his bow where he kisses it before playing. And he recognizes that movement from his childhood friend. And then after questioning the boy in the competition, he goes down a long rabbit hole trying to find his old friend. Um, and I played the boy playing in the competition at the start. And um, I think in terms of differences between that and Call the Midwife, the biggest one was just in terms of how it worked behind the scenes, because it was a bigger production, but the most notice noticeable thing from my point of view was how much time we had to do every single scene. Because usually on Call the Midwife, it's expected to get about like eight to 10 scenes done a day, maybe five to 10. But working on the Song of Names, you'd have an entire day to film maybe two scenes, two short scenes. So as a result, not only was it a lot more relaxed in terms of the time pressure just like wasn't even a consideration. We had time to do multiple takes. So if I was getting really anxious about lines and stuff, I was able to take the time to take a breather and try it fresh. But also um, it meant that you got a really good relationship with the director as he was able to take the time to go way more in depth with the character and with the scene. And it was just really refreshing to be honest. Um, I suppose my question after that uh, would be how much um, kind of ahead of time communication do you have with your directors? Um, is it usually kind of on the day you're told um, what to do or um, do they kind of have a correspondence with you beforehand of the main things they're looking for, which then gets kind of tweaked uh, mm. on the day instead? With Call the Midwife, it's on the day. Um, mm -hmm. You'll turn up on set and you'll, if it's a new director, you'll be introduced on set. Uh, with the Song of Names, uh, I had a Skype call with the director, Francois, Francois, at least a month before we started filming. Um, after uh, I'd been cast and I'd done the whole audition process, I had a Skype call with him where we talked about violin and we talked about this and that and kind of, I think it was really just a way for us to get to know each other. He, he in particular, was just a really, really great director in terms of how much attention he paid to each and every individual person I felt really lucky to work with him but yeah it was long in advance so um like final question before we move on to uh, our next topic of conversation is what are your future kind of aspirations within acting or within just kind of the film industry uh, in general where would you what would you like to do with it how far would you like to take it because of course you're doing your mid degree at the moment, yeah, like the rest of us. Um, but so it's it's very interesting, I suppose, definitely for our student audience to know kind of what it's like um, as a student actor. But uh, where would you like to go with it? Um, and also, how do you find it um, interact with your with your uni life, and how the two kind of influence each other if they do at mm. all? Um, in the future, I. I... I don't think I want to get into acting. I know this, this feels terrible to say, considering how lucky I've been to get an amazing job like that. Um, I don't really want to go into acting as a career. Um, I, 
I enjoy it greatly. I don't think I'm good enough to make it a career. And it's not something that really excites me. I do, however, want to get into filmmaking. I definitely want to be in the industry. In a dream world, I'd love to be a director. But something, if that doesn't work out, a director of photography, maybe something in the visual department. Um, and in terms of how it impacts my uni life, I've been very, very lucky in the sense that it never really has impacted my life, both at uni and at school before uni, because uh, it was very much a kind of summer job thing. And especially as I got older and as exams got more and more serious, uh, they were extremely respectful of that and would come to me like, come to me, you know, weeks before shooting would start. Uh, they do this with every single actor, but they'll ask for your availability. And as I got older, uh, it seemed like uh, we started requesting less and less availability is because I didn't want to, you know, <laughs> be asked to come up and film on the day of my A-level or whatever. Um, but yeah, really, it's like the most it's ever impacted my uni life and my school life is people being like, oh, yeah, you do that thing. That's cool. And then we move on. And it's it's great. Yeah, beyond a few in-jokes, if everything's been normal, which I feel extremely lucky. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that actually. Uh, to interject this mysterious cool. voice. Um, so, well, as a very brief introduction, which I suppose we'll go into later, I'm Joel and I've been friends with James and Max since we were at school. So, James since year seven, Max since year nine. And I, rem I remember the first time I found out that you were Uncle the Midwife, and it was very weird because um, the, obviously the target demographic being middle-aged mums, <laughs> and I watched the show with my mum. It was one of the – I have several shows, which um, pretty much exclusively just myself and my mother used to watch, and that was one of them. And uh, one of my friends, who I suppose should remain anonymous – um that i remember he he said to me <laughs> just one innocent morning in year nine i was like where's max and they were just like oh he's off filming and i was like filming what and they were just like called the midwife and i just didn't believe that that was true i thought that <laughs> being a joke because obviously i was like but i watch called the midwife and i'm max before. and it's interesting isn't it because the way that we always watched you on the show you don't really have to alter the way you speak or anything in terms of say accents because you're still playing obviously an english kid just in a different time yeah. period so other than a few language changes it's essentially still you so i remember watching you on the show is interesting because i recognize you instantly as max and you sound as you sound <laughs> but the way that you speak is slightly same, altered. Same voice. And there's always this <laughs> person. There's a slight disconnect <laughs> between the person who I'm seeing on screen and the person who I recognize as my friend. But I think that I suppose that's some, that's just the nature of acting, isn't yeah, it? It's, you it's, it's, you're very conscious of that while you're doing it. But sometimes if I'm mm. like, I'll respond in character and I'll say, yeah, and then they'll have to do the cut and they're like, I'm sorry, uh, people just didn't say yeah in the 60s or in the 50s, so could you say yes or something? And it always felt not quite right 
which is very jarring considering mm. how little effort I had to do for the rest of it. And I mm. screwed up quite a few times doing that. Well, now, yeah, obviously off that tangent, I think my my one experience where I it, uh, I found it really funny watching you um, was when you had to do the um, the uh, live streamed interview with, <laughs> and we watched the episode together beforehand by a Netflix party, and just I I'd never heard you with a really high pitched voice before, so uh, hearing that just made me like hearing the face I'd known for a very long time with a voice that I'd never heard in my <laughs> life just felt so. Unnatural. You say that, but that must have been filmed probably about a month before I met you. Like, I can't, I can't mm. remember you with. It's just so long ago. Yeah, it's, it's that long. Yeah. And that's very bizarre at first, I think, because after I got to know you, I then went back and obviously, because I was now looking for you, I could spot you in the episodes. Yeah. And it was most Honestly, bizarre. That is completely ruined <laughs> so. the show for me. So I watched the first series with uh, my parents, like Joel. Uh, I watched it before I had anything mm. to do with it. And now I just can't watch it because I can't like look at myself. <laughs> right. So moving on. Of, of course, to... um, yeah. of course, we've mentioned uh, you being playing a violin player. That's because, as as well as um, acting, Max is also very talented when it comes to his music. Now, of course, when we meet up in Thank person you. and he plays, and I'm not in the mood to hear his music. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, Max has been putting this to a good cause, along with Joel, um, with the uh, Music for Black Lives Matter uh, live stream that happened yesterday. You can find it on Facebook. You can find all the videos of all the performances. I highly recommend you watch them because there are some very talented individuals. All of them were really enjoyable. Um, so if you two could um, kind of explain to me, obviously, the, the context that this uh, is coming in, uh, you know, let's uh, hold out hope that we might have at least one viewer who, who listens to this a few years down the line, and it might well be one of us three uh, laughing at our past selves. If we could explain hmm. the more historical context of, you know, the political context of what's going on at the moment, as well as, um, you know, the event you guys did, then that would be wonderful to hear. Mm, okay. Well, I think that speaking as someone who's mixed race at the moment, I find that the political climate is um, quite definitive in the sense that I believe that we're living through a very important historical moment. Um, the murder of George Floyd um, sort of coincided, I'd say, with a bunch of other testimonials and experiences like that of the recording of, say, Amy Cooper, in that there was this sudden exposure well i say sudden exposure for those who've lived within the community and for those who've been aware of these things happening for years and indeed decades and centuries very aware of the amount of oppression that is going on in regards to the black community but i think with the advent of the cell phone and um the smartphone and and video recording there was this moment where suddenly we were seeing this man's life being taken this man George Floyd having his life taken in front of our eyes and that mixed with the climate of the fact that we've been having to stay inside our homes and the whole world has come to a stop it was like there was suddenly this click and I say that over the, obviously over the past month we've seen 
a massive increase in support for the Black Lives Matter movement, which has been around since around 2012, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, but I've never seen, as, as far as I've been alive, I've never seen a movement quite as large as this one, quite as international, quite as extensive. And so Max contacted me and a bunch of other musicians because as we've been seeing across all our social media, there have been there's been activism there's been activism going on. Um you can argue as to whether that's been effective or um Just otherwise. A, a but for what you're saying, Joel, uh for, for added context as well, all three of us um live around the Bristol area. So we've had the, the, the yeah. debate about Edward Colston's statue specifically and whether it should be up for our whole lives. Yeah. Yeah. And it was um it was quite something great moment thrown into the river. Um mm. to be honest with you, uh, I you know, as a staunch environmentalist, I still think that river is where the statue kind of belongs. Um <laughs> as opposed to like uh, up as a monument, because it's this real symbol of we don't care how mm. you've got your money. Uh, you know, if you give it to us, we'll still mm. idolize you which is um you know mm. it's, which is a, a problematic symbol uh, within itself but um i think putting mm. it in a museum kind of in the same way that ex-soviet countries um you know they they show off their soviet history as well with their museums i think is possibly the most you know kind of sensible place for it now instead of it polluting a little more mm. but yeah so as we're saying around the context of bristol and indeed the wider world we've been very aware of the push not just for amplification of black voices but also the need for um people especially white people to take a, an anti-racist stance mm -hmm. to push back against these kinds of systemic oppression and microaggressions which are shown throughout the world so recently i've been um more active on social media speaking out about this which hadn't been something i'd really done before um, but it has been very liberating. And I think we've seen, as I was saying, a lot of progression in terms of people speaking up, sharing resources, sharing petitions, donating to the memorial of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And um, in light of all this, Max then contacted myself and a few other, a few other musicians um, in, inspired by, what was the name of the event you did before this crisis. one? which was something a friend of mine set up mm. to help raise money for the National Emergencies Coronavirus Fund. Yeah, so again, a fantastic cause. Um, but so inspired by that idea, he asked if we would like to put together us and a few musicians to do a live stream between three in the afternoon and seven in the evening for us to use our musical um, talents to draw attention to a list of petitions and also donation links under the banner of music for black lives matter and for me i think it was i, I was i was really profoundly moved by that not just the fact that you know i've been asked to take part in something um with with music being something that's very close to my heart in terms of my saxophone playing, which I've been doing since I was 11 years old, and of course was heavily inspired by many, many black musicians who were, of course, so instrumental, if you pardon the pun, in um, speaking out 
in the civil rights movement, especially in the 50s and the 60s. So to be able to use the instrument that I'd learn and to play the tunes of the um, these titans of the music industry and the black community to raise awareness and help get more um, awareness for donation funds alongside so many other really talented musicians. I think it really evokes the sense of what we've been seeing recently, that we need to band together. We need to come to a place where we can all fight racist and systemic, racism and systemic oppression because it's not a black issue it's a humanity issue you know it's something that is is bipartisan it's something that we all need to be involved in to create a better society and a, a fairer one um a world that we can be proud of i think when we hand it off to the next generation wherever that may be absolutely of course this kind of happened well this obviously happened yesterday um so that date wise that'd be 12th of june this is being recorded on the 13th uh hopefully it'll be up a few days afterwards um do you guys think that you'll be doing um you know a big issue at the moment is of course with in the aftermath of george floyd's murder this is like a, currently a big issue but um in the same way that other more um you know other social justice movements kind of like uh veganuary and pride month in june kind of get their spotlight um within those within those months um of course there's the issue that the, the same might happen with uh with the blm movement um and you know uh once everything's kind of uh died down a bit so um do you guys think that you'll be doing more of this kind of when black lives matter is not in the news and um i suppose if you have any general thoughts about that in general then um i'd love to hear them as well i hope so I think to to not do it again would to go against the point of doing it in the first place. Because for me, the idea came as a result of feeling very stuck and a bit sort of um, upset at how little I could actively do to help what was going on, which is something I was very passionate about. Mm. I think, yeah, to to move on with the media would be the most cynical thing you could possibly do and completely against the point. I think it's a conversation that should never stop happening. Um, I suppose another thing to ask as well, like along with that company line, uh, Joel, were you just about to say something there if I cut you off? Oh, I mean, I was just going to mention the fact that I'm very aware, I think, of the damage of performative activism. Of course, there's that famous uh, Martin Luther King Jr. quote, which flies around, you know, the um, the moderate white is the, well, I, I don't know the exact quote, but, you know, in, in the era that the moderate white is the greatest enemy of the Negro, because in order to create real chains, you need to have the passion and, you know, put in the effort to make those changes on a day-to-day -day basis. So certainly for me, um, when George Floyd was first murdered, I was already going into the situation with the mindset of doubt as to how much really would change. Because I saw the video and I was like, well, we've seen Ahmed Arbery and it took three months for the men who murdered him to even you know, get arrested. 
And as I was watching, you know, the video in great distress, part of, I was angry, but I was also somewhat depressed because I had the feeling that it wouldn't really lead to anything because it would be the same whole, you know, after a shooting, thoughts and prayers. And, you know, maybe there would be some statuses well, shared, no, but there wouldn't really be much well, of a change. Take it out the river now, but the statue is gone because mm. of this, which is, well, I suppose, I think that makes it mm. far more, like, kind of personal with this issue from all the way to the US to have that change mm. happen in Bristol now is really quite something. Mm. Yeah, but we're definitely seeing radical and powerful change which has swept the globe and i think that's some and as i was saying it's not something i've really seen before um i it might be as a result of the fact that we of course have been all locked up in our houses for months now and i think just this desire and building resentment has led to a place where people are saying no we aren't going to stand for this anymore we want to see real change we want to see active change and we're going to go ahead and try and make it known like obviously the statue of edward colson has been a debate in bristol for years but the people seem to forget that there was a petition which had eleven thousand signatures looking for its removal um so by administration rules you know people are saying oh well we wish that it could have come down under more formal matters and i think that you know that might have occurred eventually but at least in my view, I think the protest, the protesters just sped yeah. the situation up. And I think that is what we're seeing with the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment. It's this speeding up of the conversations we should have had years and even decades ago, which have been, you know, ignored because people have, you know, are just living their lives going day to day, um, following up in jobs and education and you know getting distracted by everything at the moment the world is a, is really at a standstill and so now the opportunity to speak out has come yeah, and it, people it, are taking it it was this sort of horrible perfect storm of things like this coming to mm. light like as you said coinciding at the same time where the public was not only greatly you know upset of what was going on with with the whole COVID-19 thing, but they were also very upset at the government for their handling of that particular situation. So this all coincided at a time where the world was feeling very anti-government uh, and leadership. And, um, and also <clears throat> at a time where, because the virus forced an entire society essentially to be shut down, um, it was also proof that that was possible, that it was possible to have these major changes implemented within weeks. So people are like, okay, if you can shut this down in a matter of weeks, why can't you change this as well? Mm. Yeah, um, so I suppose if we, if we bring this uh, podcast, this poor film podcast, back a bit more to films now, which, um, you know, oh, yeah. of course. Uh, of course. Like, this is a key issue, and of course it stems into films as well. We've had film companies such as Disney uh, and so forth, um, uh, you know, tweeting out, um, talking about um, their, their issue, well, their thoughts on the matter um, about, you know, Black Lives Matter, obviously saying they stand with their black staff. So um, I suppose Disney's um, an example maybe of what uh, I personally see as performative activism, because as soon as they tweet that out, you've got 
reply tweets comparing hmm. the Force Awakens poster in China with the Force Awakens poster, um, you know, in America, yeah. and the different thing was, you know, he was hmm. like relegated to a much uh, more obscure position, um, you know, to try and appeal to that more racist uh, Chinese crowd. Um, I suppose there are other examples mm. of this as well. Disney as well, um, you know, it is Pride Month at the moment as well. And I suppose we should also note that um, the, there is a lesbian kiss in the background of um, The Rise of Skywalker, which then got out uh, cut out of the Taiwanese cut um, and I think as well the Chinese cut. So what do you think of, you know, these companies, um, you know, saying that... They, they care about all these things, but when you look at their actions, and especially when it seems coming, like sucking up to um, governments where this is not allowed um, and so forth, uh, do you think that's um, you know, working against these movements uh, and what they support? Yes. Yeah, it's not really helpful at all. I definitely think, when I think about the media that I grew up with as a child, and when people have conversations about the importance, the importance of representation, I think that often people don't quite understand why we're having those conversations in the first place. And when I think about it, I think about the fact that, you know, I've always been interested in writing. If I was to have, you know, an ideal career, a dream career, it would be to be a writer. And when I look back at past stories, up until I was aged about, 16 every single character i ever wrote was always white and straight because with, through all the media i've ever con consumed whether that be books films video games whatever it may be um you know the norm that i was shown was that you know it's it's a white crowd it's a white protagonist you do have a bit of diversity in there but you know the Black minority ethnic characters will be in the background. Perhaps they might be supporting characters, but they won't be in the forefront because they can't be in the forefront. And when you're conditioned to believe that, of course, you come to trying to write your own and create your own ideas, you're going to reproduce the same thing because you've been taught from everything you've seen and everything you know that um, that's just the correct way of doing it. So when it came to Disney um, sidelining Boyega in the poster, and of course, when Black Panther came out in China, the poster there is just of the suit. And there are, unlike the poster when the Western release, which, you know, had the whole cast, uh, which was of course, mostly black. And that was a really big deal. Um, in China, it was completely stripped down and also hiding of gay kiss. It really didn't particularly surprise me because, you know, Disney is this massive corporate company. Their interests don't really lie at all, to be honest, in representation. They lie in furthering the brand, um, making more money, making films that they know will appeal to as wide an audience as possible. So throwing some diversity in there, but not enough to the point where, you know, audiences in China will feel like they're being alienated. So... I think when we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, I feel there is great potential there, especially on the point of the amplification of Black voices, that there can be um, further continuation, I, at least I hope, further continuation of diversity in media. 
you know, as a child, I was always a big fan of superhero films. And of course, you know, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe now being owned by Disney, um, that's very much under the control. But it really struck me that the first time I'd ever really experienced seeing a superhero who looked a similar color to me was watching the Luke Cage show, which premiered in what, late 2016, I believe, or no, late 2015. Mm. You know, so for my entire childhood, not really loving superheroes and, you know, you can use allegory to talk about these kind of things in terms of racial differences, but you don't really get to see black characters generally. So it took me until my teens in order to be able to actually see, you know, a black superhero or black characters really coming into their own more commonly. And I hope that with the amplification from the Black Lives Matter movement, that the next generation of children, the generation who are growing up in the 20s now or the next decade, hopefully they might be able to have role models to follow on from who, you know, they can aspire to be, who they can coin their message. Because in terms of what Disney has, they have many great IPs, I think, which have really great messages. But like the diversity has a long way to go before we're at the place where we can have those positive messages and also the role models yeah. to fill them. That was um, really interesting to listen to, Joel. Thank you very much for that. Um, so now if we move on to our third topic, which um, of course does link to this um, issue about representation of black people in films. Um, I wanted to talk to you two about films and filmmakers that kind of, um, you know, tackle the issues of racism uh, and so forth. Um, I was wondering if uh, either of you had any like particular examples you'd want to share. The one I personally would choose would definitely be uh, 12 Years a Slave. And I think the one comment I'd definitely like to make now and uh, make clear to people now would be that... Um, the Green Book, I don't think, did anything particularly for, uh, for for any race movement. I think it's very telling that the director of that film, Peter Farelli, uh, as far as my research has gone, he has not made any statement regarding Black Lives Matter. Oh, I can't believe a white saviour film didn't <laughs> uh, say anything that important. Yeah, I w- I'm not sure if mm. I go so far. The white saviour trope, Joel, could you um, explain it to me? Because... Um, uh, the one thing yeah, I so, think might be um, unclear for listeners is, um, well, for for the Black Lives Matter movement to really move forward, right? Um, you're you're going to need like the help of white people because the white people are mainly the people in the establishment. Mm. So could you kind of draw a like? I I can appreciate that this line might be not be clear by any stretch of the imagination, but no, no, I understand what you're getting at. In terms of, yeah, yeah. So in terms of white people helping the Black Lives Matter movement, it's a thing of unity, isn't it? So when you think about, you know, feminism, feminism isn't just about women, it's about men as well. We need to work together to get ourselves to a a better place. Um, (laughs) The problem is because, you know, the word feminism has the word feminine in it, people often assume, well, that's a woman's issue. I don't need to worry about that, especially if you're a man. Um, But the same principle applies for Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. We need to work together with those of white skin 
we're not being saved we're being assisted and that's the way forward so when it comes to the white savior trope in films um it's sort of the same thing as a deus ex machina really you know we you you know writers or film directors getting to a point where they realize that the protagonist can't really do anything and so you know the white savior comes in fixes everything saves the day because <laughs> the um colored protagonist is just unable to fix them or perhaps they're in a culture which of course is you know just by just by its mere existence of it say not a western culture it needs to be saved air quotes very heavily here by a western white protagonist <laughs> and it's the trait we've seen so many times in media i know that we've i think when it comes to films like the green book i feel like the green book has something that i would call crash oh. syndrome it thinks it thinks that it's doing or providing a really strong statement on the issue of race and it will it will be open up di- it'll be opening dialogues in order to help you know and provide a means forward but in reality it's only reinforcing the, the current stereotypes and in fact actually regressing the dialogue which so badly needs to be opened up and unfortunately you do get that a lot when i think about you know the, obviously the um the netflix big budget film what was it um bright nice. with will smith and Great you know it, well. there were attempts Mm. And they were attempting to do this racial allegory. Um, and Lindsay Ellis on YouTube has done a fantastic video on this. If you, I recommend watching it. But this this fact that they tried to provide this racial allegory, but it really doesn't work because when it's so bare and so clear what they're trying to get at, and they're really not saying much as, <laughs> as at the end of the day, the resolution isn't really to say oh yes racial inequality is the core problem of this universe actually the problem is this MacGuffin that this evil warlord is some some rubbish like that (laughs) and i think that's a major problem we need to get to a point where we're writing stories which communicate that you know racial injustice is bad and it is actively detracting from the world we're living is which which it is it is detracting from the world we're living in and so we need to be able to make films that are honest about that and explore that and don't need to rely on the crutch of the deus ex machina white savior in order to come to a resolution the white savior trip kind of feeds into this um i think this bigger issue that um, I think films that tackle this issues and LGBT issues and and other issues kind of face, which is how can you possibly offer like this, this nuanced message on race and how can you really make sure that you're conveying the pain that these things cause like properly? I think Crash and The Green Book Mm -hmm. of, of any film that I've seen tackle racism have by far the least nuanced messages add nothing to the conversation and um, I think you know, mm. like it, 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 it's kind of unbearable to watch at times where it, it, it feels so like, mm. predictable of what's going to happen is um, 
you know, like when they're buying a suit in the green book, you're like, oh, what's going to happen? They're going to be like, oh, black people can't come in here. And then there's a bit of racism. And of course, mm-hmm. because racism is an absolutely disgusting thing, still, it's still evocative. Mm. But at the same time, I think it like mm. these films, especially white skin, run the risk of being seen as like exploitative as well yeah. at the same time of just kind of being a lazy. It definitely seems like exactly. a, a cheap yeah. way in order to... It's like a get-out-of-jail-free card in order to make your film seem like it packs more of a punch than it actually does by showing something inherently disgusting mm. and sort of difficult to watch. The film's able to convince the audience that it's making a bigger statement than it actually is just by merely showing it without providing any sort of commentary. And I think another issue with those films is the resolution they provide mm. at the end. If you're showing a film that's, mm. even if it accurately shows the kind of pain and suffering of these sort of issues, by giving it such a clear cut rev- resolution as quite a few of these films do, which I know is done for the sake of providing a moral, mm. uh, like a, a giving the film a morality and a, a sort of lesson for the audience to take away. But by doing so, it kind of takes away from the purpose of telling a story like that because if you your audience leaving the cinema going mm. oh that was nice i'm really glad it ended that way you've completely lost any relationship to reality mm. exactly and i think there are two films i'm thinking about which are sort of in a growth spot on this issue so james obviously mentioned earlier 12 years a slave which is an incredibly difficult and raw film about slavery and in the end, of course, Brad Pitt comes in and ends up saving Solomon Northup. And I think the only reason I would give that one a pass is because within the historical period, that genuinely, other than the very, very low chance of that slave being able to escape, which would have been incredibly tough, and we actually see that happen in the film, and the consequences of when he gets caught again, I think... In that scenario, I will. You can allow the white savior because that's something that was actually genuinely happening, and that's something that, as a consequence of being set and as a period drama, is the only resolution. Um, and also, the other one I was thinking about was um, Spike Lee's Black Klansman, which is an interesting. This is one of the films which I think. I was I had a really positive reaction to because it does what Crash thinks it's doing, but actually does it in a way that's helpful. It does opens up a dialogue about racism, and not only does it show its absurdity, but it shows it in a way that is simultaneously funny but also powerful and hard to deal with. And that's important. These are the kind of films we need to see more of. And in the end, um, the police officer who's pretending to be the KKK member ends up getting apprehended and is being arrested by police. And Adam Driver comes in and shows that he's a police officer and prevents him from being, you know, possibly even killed by the two officers who are coming in to detain him. And I'd say that, yes, technically, you can view that as a, as a white saviour moment, but I'd say because the rest of the film has been built on this moral message of showing how ridiculous racism actually is and showing how deeply infected 
the South and um, the police department has been with systems of systemic racism. At the end of the day, I don't think the message is lost. And also at the end of that film, there is a very um, difficult but powerful montage put in from the Charlottesville protests. So the film is set, I believe, in the 70s. But by flashing forward and showing today and showing, you know, the real life David Duke, who was portrayed in the film, you know, it, it evokes the fact that this is still happening. This is still an issue. So you don't come out of that film feeling like, oh, it's OK. It was all resolved. It's OK. You, you realize, oh, this is still an issue. This is still something we need to talk about and still something we need to speak up about. And it's something that I hope as we go forward having seen um, the protests and the movement really flourish in the last month, and I hope continue to, I hope that films and indeed all media continue to show and discuss racial issues in a proactive and helpful manner. Now, I've, you know, I don't know if Disney will really be able to achieve that. Maybe it's wishful thinking to believe that they can be titans of diversity in the industry but at least when it comes to say smaller independent companies or companies with you know new upcoming directors or directors with uh, directors and writers of an interesting vision hopefully i think we might see some more progression and really improve yeah. on the precedent w- which we're setting right those now those two films apart from the white savior trope the ones that you mentioned in particular is just how first of all how like you said, it doesn't take away from the message. That's not the pure moral story that the film's trying to tell, because uh, it's like it's like an additional thing in the story aside from the film's proper storyline. But also, it, it um, it's mm. just an example of ways in which white people can actually use their privilege for good, as opposed to just. Um, being mm. this kind of like individual savior figure yeah it's not like this one character he's mm, the good exactly. guy so he's going to do this this and this it's more of just this is what you are able to do if you're white this is what you can actively do to practice anti-racism mm. and something that no i agree should, um especially white people should take into reality brilliant um i think on that note uh that is a good place to end this podcast um, thank you two very much uh, for joining me today. And thank you to everyone at home who's listening. Um, I hope that uh, you go and check out Max's work and also Joel's work. Um, if you check out the uh, Soji Facebook page, which is spelled S-O-D-Z-I, then you will find writings from Joel and um, members of his family about what it's like being black in Britain. And uh, while it's just starting out, I've no doubt because of Joel's talents as a writer that um, he's going to have uh, some very insightful pieces um, up there soon. Uh, Max and his continued work in Call the Midwife and um, uh, made other films if he ever gets into them and as well, hopefully with uh, music for Black Lives Matter should uh, hopefully be at a quality where Max still probably says that he's terrible, but those of us around him say, no, he's actually pretty good. (laughs) His modesty Uh, precedes uh, him. The film podcast should be back next week with different guests um, uh, discussing things like how coronavirus has affected the industry and so forth. I hope you join me for that. 
thank you all very much and i hope you have a good day you stay safe and well wherever you are thank you very much thank you for having me thank you very much